You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A new Mirai variant, Okiru, is forming botnets of ARC-based IoT devices. Meltdown and Spectre remediation continues. The CIA is said to have confirmed that NotPetya was a GRU operation. Suspicions rise that the shadow brokers used security tools to scan for classified documents. U.S. and Canadian officials raise alarms about election influence operations. The Wichita Swatter has been charged with involuntary manslaughter. Malicious Chrome extensions have been spotted and USB drives contain the darndest things. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 16th, 2018. A Mirai variant, Mirai Okiru, is active in the wild. The DDoS botnet is said to be capable of targeting widely used ARC-based Internet of Things devices, Its signatures diverge significantly from earlier Mirai strains, which will impede detection and blocking. ARC CPUs are found in a very wide variety of products, prominently including automotive, mobile, televisions, cameras, and so on. Researchers at the Malware Must Die team are credited with spotting Okiru. Reports say that about a billion IoT devices ship with ARC CPUs annually, So the potential for very large botnets capable of strong distributed denial-of-service attacks is very high. Note that many of the affected devices, as is so often the case with the Internet of Things, will be difficult, if not effectively impossible, to patch. The response to Meltdown Inspector proceeds with performance penalties that, while smaller than initially feared, remain real concerns. Enterprises receive divided counsel on whether to apply patches or adopt other approaches to defense. Mobile devices seem particularly affected. U.S. sources, seconded by retired American and British officials, are saying that the Central Intelligence Agency has concluded that Ukraine was right. Not Petya attacks on the former Soviet Republic indeed were the work of Russian military intelligence service GRU, specifically GTSST, the GRU's main center for special technology. You'll recognize the GRU under one of its several familiar nicknames. Call them Fancy Bear and let it go at that. The method is being described as a watering hole attack. The extortion requests were so much misdirection to make it appear that the campaign was criminal and not a state directive move in hybrid warfare. It was a destructive attack. Files were being eliminated, not held for ransom. The CIA has declined to make any official public comment. The U.S. Senate believes it's seeing signs of Russian influence operations directed against midterm congressional elections. There are reports of fishing expeditions against political targets, which is believed to be the method used to compromise the Democratic National Committee during the last election cycle. Canadian authorities are also bracing for an expected wave of election influence operations, which they too see as emanating largely from Russia. 
Russia continues to deny any meddling in the elections. Essentially, everyone else thinks they're trying to finagle. There may also be an approaching consensus that two mysteries are converging. What, if anything, did hackers use Kaspersky security software to accomplish? And where did the shadow brokers get the material they've leaked? Sources close to the U.S. intelligence community are saying it looks as if the shadow brokers obtained the material they leaked via scans conducted by Kaspersky security tools. Kaspersky Lab has consistently denied allegations of involvement in espionage or improper collusion with Russian intelligence services. The identity of the shadow brokers has long been controversial and obscure, with the three most commonly entertained theories being that they're a Russian intelligence organ, that they're a small crew of disgruntled U.S. intelligence community insiders, or that they're a very high-end and unusually capable set of anonymous-style hacktivists. Right now, signs are pointing strongly toward door number one, one of the Bear sisters. The debate over net neutrality continues, with many unhappy that the FCC recently rolled back Obama-era rules for Internet service providers. Lance Cottrell is chief scientist at Intrepid Corporation, and he weighs in on the debate. So at this point, we've gone back from the net neutrality laws which placed ISPs as being common carriers and therefore required to follow net neutrality principles. The FCC has rolled back those rules, but they've not yet taken effect. But when they do, the ISPs will then be treated as content creators. They won't have those same requirements uh, to treat all of the traffic the same. And then that that will probably have a whole range of uh, consequences, mostly not immediately. Right? There'll certainly be a time delay as uh, the ISPs decide what they want to do and start changing their policies. And is there any any sense for for how that might roll out? What we might see? Are we expecting them to, you know, nibble around the edges to uh, to see how people react to changes? I think that's exactly what we're going to see. It would be a tactical mistake to make radical changes quickly. I think the odds of a major backlash would be significant. So we're going to see more of a slow uh, progression of of these behaviors, probably starting with things like privileging the price of certain services. So ISP's preferred video streaming service will become free with your subscription or, you know, certain other traffic will be accelerated. I think the biggest problem is that it sends a very strong signal to the ISPs that the government wants to take a hands-off approach to this regulatory environment. They're saying, in general, we don't want to be trying to get in the way of what you do. And I think that's where the real danger is, because ISPs have a long history of pretty questionable behaviors, uh, including actively monitoring and modifying user content to insert, for example, advertising, to provide tracking to advertisers, to put in alerts. They'll actually write JavaScript into some third party's website as it comes across the wire. And I think those are the sort of behaviors that we'll also see accelerating, even though they're not directly a part of the net neutrality legislation. And in terms of any implications uh, from the security point of view, uh, what do you see coming there? I think the biggest problem from a security point of view is exactly that uh, interception and modification of content by the ISPs. The more they feel empowered to engage in that sort of activity, the more risk that imposes for end users. So that every time you're going in and changing things, it obviously has the possibility of breaking uh, the web page. But it's also a fantastic lever point for a hacker. And if that interception and modification system was ever to be subverted, 
that would be a gigantic opportunity for an attacker to insert malware and phishing links and disable other kinds of security right there. And so yeah. I think the most important thing for people to do is start adopting encrypted connections, VPNs, secure web pages, that sort of thing, just to ensure the integrity of, of that end-to-end -end connection. One of my perspectives on this is as an entrepreneur, and I think I started a company back in the mid-90s, and the internet was at that time absolutely flat. And I was able to go in and compete with anyone else. I was able to stand up services. The big players didn't have any meaningful systematic advantage over me, and it allowed me to get in and establish myself and be successful. And I think one of the things we're going to see here is uh, not so much as a information security risk, but as a systemic risk that when net neutrality ends, the ability of new players to come in and compete gets significantly reduced because the people who will able to be able to pay to play will be the major players. And so I think it has the potential to really reduce the diversity of offerings and new technologies and new platforms that we'll see rolling out over time. That's Lance Cottrell from Intrepid. Canadian authorities are hearing two cyber-related cases. In one, the Mounties again get their man. Jordan Evan Bloom, former proprietor of now-defunct Leaked Source, the site that compiled and sold access to public data breaches. Mr. Bloom is appearing to answer charges that include trafficking in identity information, unauthorized use of a computer, mischief to data, and possession of property obtained by crime. In the other case, streaming service Twitch is bringing a case against a British Columbia resident, Brandon Lucas Apple, who's alleged to have clogged the service with hateful spam. The criminal charge is mischief related to computer data. Mr. Apple is also under a civil injunction to stop doing what he's been doing. Motherboard points out that Twitch users are often bothered by stream sniping, that is, in-game distraction or the much more serious swatting. A sad and tragic swatting case in the U.S. is proceeding as Tyler Raj Barris, age 25, is charged with involuntary manslaughter. If convicted, he faces up to 11 years in prison. Barris is said by police to have made a swatting call in connection with some online game chest beating that resulted in Wichita, Kansas police shooting dead a completely innocent and uninvolved man. The victim's address was apparently picked at random. Barris, in a jailhouse interview with Canvas TV station KWCH, said he felt a little remorse for what happened. He added, I never intended for anyone to get shot and killed. I don't think during any attempted swatting anyone's intentions are for someone to get shot and killed. If Barris is convicted and gets the max, he'll be getting off lightly, whether he intended for his lurid call to police to kill an unarmed father of two or not. Barris also faces charges in Canada, where police in Calgary, Alberta, suspect him of other swatting calls. Researchers at Iceberg, that's Iceberg but spelled I-C-E-B-R-G, have identified a large number of malicious Chrome extensions. They say they've observed the extensions used for browser proxying in the course of what looks like a click fraud campaign. Finally, would you plug in a USB drive you found on the street? No? Good. How about one you were given by the National Police for acing a quiz about cybersecurity? Maybe? Well, us too. But it didn't work out so well during a National InfoSec event in Taiwan, where the Criminal Investigation Bureau, known as the CBI, last month handed out USB drives as prizes during a data security exposition 
hosted by the country's presidential office. The CBI was celebrating a recent crackdown on cybercrime. Unfortunately, they had a contractor scan the drives to verify that they held 8 gigs, and in the process, an old strain of criminal spyware was uploaded from said contractor's infected machine. It's embarrassing, and a lesson to all who give away promotional swag. Stick to low-risk items. Even some of those can cause trouble. One of our stringers once worked for a company that gave away coffee mugs as promotional items. Unfortunately, they went with a low-cost supplier, and when you microwave the mugs, they exploded. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Robert, welcome back. Um, you, know, you and I have been working our way through some of these uh, ICS uh, categories, uh, going through some of the risks and uh, complexities. And uh, today I wanted to touch on oil. Uh, what do we need to know about the security of those systems? I think oil is another one that does get a lot of attention, especially being a, a major energy player in any national economy. Uh, and so there have been investments in that space over the year, but there's very unique challenges that they have, of course, as well. So when we talk about the oil industry, we usually divide it up into upstream, uh, midstream, and downstream oil. So what are we, where are we getting it? What are we doing with it? How are we getting it there kind of uh, aspects, um, whether it's you're going to your gas station and pumping gas or we're drilling it out of the ocean, right? Like wh- wh- what is this process of oil? 
each one of those is a different sort of challenge in of itself. How do you protect the oil refinery? Is that going to be different than the drilling wells? Well, yes. Well, what about the pipelines? Okay. What about shipping? Um, well, we'd probably leave shipping out from them when we just put that in the classification of like shipping for maybe next time transportation. Hmm. Uh, but what about the protection of those gas stations? So the risk at the gas station level is not so significant. An adversary doing this damage or disruption of one gas station, not too significant. But if we are using homogeneous devices and the gas pumps are all the same and we start connecting those to the internet and uh, they're all like embedded devices and maybe they have some default passwords on it or something like that, that could actually be an issue because in most places, just having a default password on like a SCADA environment is not going to let you take down a power. If you're talking about end devices, if you're a scenario is just to annoy the heck out of the uh, <laughs> the uh, populace there, um, shutting off gas stations would be disruptive. Sure. Um, maybe even like an activist issue for them. If you're uh, now talking more of like really hurting uh, a country, you're talking about the midstream operations or maybe even the upstream operations. Like, could you? Uh, do something that's potentially environmentally unsound when you're talking about um, actually drilling for the oil or maybe even in the oil refiner itself. So long story short, there's a lot of different things that come into scope for them. They each have different risk scenarios, but almost you not wouldn't say uniquely, but but in a in a way kind of is for the oil industry is also the activist threat where the electric transmission substation is not truly concerned about protesters at the electric substation that right. a remote adversary that it takes advantage of or inadvertently is with um, sort of sort of combined threat scenarios, even if it's accidental. That is a consideration definitely for the oil industry um, as that is always a hot topic for them. So they have, they have to think of a lot of different threat models when it comes to the cyber specific one of like a true um, cyber threat model. Uh, there historically have been a lot of different threats that we've been aware of, plenty of them active actually in the past year, going after uh, oil sites around the world. And it's not so much where a electric substation that gets compromised in Ukraine may not really scare the heck out of everybody in the U.S. It actually kind of did, but, but it isn't the worst thing in terms of, oh my gosh, it's happening here now. It's bad for our, our community neighbors, of course. But, um, but those oil companies often operate in a global and interconnected way. Um, what happens to oil production in, uh, you know, Algeria might actually affect how we're importing it into Louisiana and and processing it, right? So it is a very global, interconnected community as well. So the security for them, I would say, is very globally uh, important on the interconnection of the community, and they have a much wider variety of types of threat landscapes that they have to deal with. And I think for that reason, more so than many industries. They need to take a very intelligence-driven approach of understanding and, and and specifically understanding the threats they're up against and how they're actually reducing risk according to those. It can't just be every single possible thing to occur, but they've really got to consider how am I going to protect an oil refinery different than the pipeline? How am I going to recover uh, from an outage or disruption in my ecosystem or supply chain that is you know a continent away? So they, have, they definitely have to think about these things. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.